This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It's 5.08 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with me, Sharad Kutin. So tonight we're going to do a bit of a roundup of uh, foreign affairs matters, uh, looking specifically in the way the government is trying to negotiate its way through, you know, changing geopolitical landscape across the country. We've had some major announcements, actually, from uh, uh, Wisma Putra and, uh, and Putrajaya in, in particular, uh, Dato Sri Anu Ibrahim uh, has re- revealed uh, an interest in changing the way Malaysia deals with China and having China part of its uh, Look East policy. We also had a very interesting and somewhat controversial uh, policy turnaround, and that is uh, the banning of Israeli ships from docking in Malaysia. Remember, uh, this changed in about 20 years ago when some ships were allowed uh, access to our ports uh, and then, of course, allowed some landing rights as well. So all that is part of the evolving uh, foreign policy outlook of the current government. So we're going to have a look at that. Uh, also, I think if you've been watching the news, you'd realize that uh, the prime minister has been traveling quite a bit. Uh, he was in Japan recently uh, to uh, kind of... SEAL relationships there. He's also uh, visited uh, the United States um, recently where there were some questions asked about whether uh, Malaysia's tilting towards China. The question is, is that a problem? Is that, in fact, in our national interest? So lots of questions that we're going to be putting to our foreign uh, policy analysts uh, after the break. So remember, but um, it's not just for policy wonks. This is a a story that we all have uh, a skin in the game. I guess, and you know, you might have your own thoughts. So tell us, what kind of foreign policy do you want the government, this current government, to pursue? Do you want it based on morals and ethics? And if so, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? Remember, you can call us on double seven double three two nine hundred. You can tweet us at BFM Radio or send us a voice message or um, a note on zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Keep it here, BFM eighty nine point nine. Because freedom matters. BFM 89.9. It's 5.11. This is Evening Edition. I'm Sharad Kutin. We're beginning the day with a discussion of foreign policy and the current government's changing foreign policy outlook. Uh, but as, as you know, uh, we're always interested in your thoughts. So tell us, uh, what kind of foreign policy do you want this government to pursue? Do you want it based on ethics? And if so, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now we have on the line Collins Chong. He's a foreign affairs and security analyst with the Center for Civilizational Dialogue at University Malaya to help us uh, understand better where this current administration is going. Thank you so much for joining us, Collins. Good to have Thank you. Thank you, Sharad. Thank you for. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, let's get straight into it. And um, but but before we get into the specific areas uh, that uh, constitute foreign affairs matters for any government, uh, the prime minister was reported saying very recently that Malaysia advocates a fiercely independent foreign policy. Now, for a small to medium-sized country, but one that's heavily dependent on global trade, how does such a claim translate in real terms? 
Well, we have been practicing this notion of, you know, uh, neutrality for the past many decades now. We have seen how, you know, we being a maritime nation, a trading nation, of course, it's of great importance for us to ensure that we have this uh, resilience in terms of supply chain, in terms of trade, in terms of you know, ensuring that we have the you know the best of the returns for our spot markets. And uh, by maintaining this so-called fiercely independent foreign policy, uh, uh, we are you know hopeful that we can get the best returns in terms of our economic sustainability. But then we have seen how also this has translated into you know risk in the bigger sphere in terms of our you know foreign policy, in terms of our defense and security policy as to what has happened in South China Sea. And of course, this changing, rapidly shifting geopolitical arena in our region with different security landscapes. And uh, this has also you know, created you know, new implications, ripple effects, and that uh, we, we need to be wise. We need to be really you know, future-driven and uh, forward-looking in terms of really assessing the best returns to us in terms of you know, really assessing what has been the best returns so far throughout the many years of this practice and whether we are better off with this you know, neutrality, and that you know we hold this all this whole notion of uh, the rise of China and this century being the Asian century, and you know the dwindling prospects of the West, you know the American decline, and this has not been the case for you know the past five to ten years. We have seen how the U.S. and West have still maintained their supremacy in terms of both in economic terms as well as of course in military and security norms, and this is how we really need to be you know realistic in terms of not being uh, quick to jump to Ben Wigan, not, not to have all these knee-jerk reactions and to ensure that, you know, we get the best returns and we need to have this, uh, you know, comprehensive, uh, you know, assessment in terms of um, the, the, the cost-benefit calculations in terms of what's best for the country. Uh, in, in, the, in the long term. Right. That's very interesting because uh, I, th I think for people who are not in that policy, foreign policy space, they might, um, you know, hear from you a very kind of hard-nosed, kind of pragmatic, you know, real politic kind of approach to foreign affairs, where I think maybe in the general public we have a, a much more kind of sentimental, maybe somewhat uh, ethics-driven discourse. But we'll come to that later. I do want to, let's pick up on some specifics so we can get down to the assessment that you asked us to make about what actually um, has transpired with this uh, policy of neutrality, whether it's really given us the best uh, options and also the best results. So let's look at the Prime right. Minister's recent remarks about China and his call to add China to our Look East policy. I mean, what do you make of the, the both the substance and the timing of this announcement? Right. Uh, we have seen how we have practiced the Lucas policy for many decades now. And of course, Japan and South Korea will be our main uh, you know, you know, partners in terms of you know, uh, you know, learning the best outcomes in terms of both work ethics, uh, you know, economic prospects, and, and work culture values of both countries. And that uh, you know, we have seen how the returns have been substantive for the past many years. And uh, of course, now, you know, since you know, the last decade, we have been you know, increasingly tilting towards, you know, our dependence on China as our main economic trade partner, as well as, you know, increasingly in, 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 the, in the sphere and in, in the domain of security. And now that, you know, this whole notion of renewed uh, presence and influence-seeking activities, uh, these countermeasures by the West, by, you know, regional players, including Japan and South Korea, uh, with the new OSA now being developed by Japan. And, uh, and, and we have, we, we really need to, you know, cater to all this, you know, cap, you know capitalizing our in green uh, for the past four to five decades of Lucas policy on Japan and South Korea. But then we are also fearful of you know all these moves to you know align with you know 
rivals of China, including Japan and, and South Korea, to a certain extent, of course, the West as well, and not being seen, you know, at, by Beijing as sending a message to China that we are now more closely aligned with these new players and with potential inclusion of, you know, uh, new partnerships in terms of with you know, the court uh, partnership or with, you know, having been more inclined towards Western overtures. So, and, and now that we have seen the announcement by uh, PM Anwar that uh, China will be included in the peace policy, of course, you know, being seen by some factors as uh, sort of like appeasement to, you know, and sort of a reassuring message to China that we are not, you know, really abandoning, uh, you know, China in this equation and that as much as we want, uh, you know, greater, you know, Japanese uh, values and greater Japanese security assurances, we also still will, you know, put China as the main uh, a partner in terms of, you know, in all domains. So um, the substance and the timing is, you know, it speaks for itself. But, uh, you know, as, as I've mentioned, going forward, we need to reassess in terms of the, uh, you know, the future returns because we have seen now how, how the, uh, the dwindling economic prospect in China, we have this, uh, you, know, you know, crisis, we have demographic crisis now, we have this debt trap, we have the debt crisis uh, in China, we have this whole restructuring process taking, uh, you know, you know, taking process in, in China and also see how the risk un, uh, unfolding in, in Taiwan as well as in South China Sea. So, and, and this, you know, entanglement in terms of deepening economic dependence on China will provide risk, of course, to a, to a large extent. So how we navigate all these new maneuvers by different players will dictate, will determine uh, our future costs and, uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of our neutrality in terms of balancing and hedging you know, our, our you know, responses to all these new players. Yeah, so I, I get you. You're saying essentially that we shouldn't just uncritically hitch our uh, our star to China's uh, fate and uh, future. So, you know, the question is, when, when you think about, uh, say, for instance, no-go areas in, in China-Malaysia relations, um, how would you map that out for us? What is it that, in some sense, uh, you know, would be a, a source of tension between the two countries if we was, if we, Malaysia sought to kind of uh, comment on those issues? Yeah, we have seen how the, uh, the, the, the traditional threats, we can, you know, classify that as, you know, the traditional security threats from now the, uh, the rise of, you know, the return of great power rivalry. And uh, tensions in South China Sea, of course, there's a main point of contention between uh, us. Uh, and of course, we have seen how, you know, past incidents that have happened. We can quote, you know, a couple of examples in the West Kapila incident where we have these incursions, we have these rising tensions. And uh, so all this, you know, have created these new waves of uh, nationalist sentiments. But, you know, as, as we can see, they were all quite short-lived. And uh, we have this initial search of, you know, greater awareness of this issue, but died down eventually after a couple of weeks. And uh, generally, the, the, the level of public awareness, public understanding of this issue has remained uh, you know, relatively low. And that we need to really, you know, you know, point out the uh, reality of the picture of the entire situation. What's happening now, even as we speak uh, in South China Sea, and with renewed, you know, bellicosity or softiness of China with regards to, you know, uh, dealing with Manila, for example, in terms of these clashes of the vessels and all, and the new, you know, these um, threats being posed by this, you know, greater, you know, rising security dilemma, and what will be our responses to all this? So apart from this traditional threat that we have seen in South China Sea, we have also faced uh, increasingly uh, volatile domestic uh, point of contention as regards to, you know, with, with regards to the uh, critical industries, including rail, including semiconductor industry, where 
they were all, of course, critically important to us. Taking Red Elf, for example, we have this almost one trillion ringgit in terms of this uh, deposit that we have in the country. And how we manage that moving forward, because we have to manage that really wisely. We have Petronas for our oil and gas deposit as you know, incorporating the whole national level kind of uh, you know, you know, body to manage that uh, wealth and our asset. But we really need that kind of initiative in taking care of our rails and to ensure that it's in you know, our best returns, our best uh, regards that we need to play this into our better hands. And that, of course, we have seen also the, the increased level of um, you know, wariness as to you know, the level of the investments by Chinese companies, for example, Forest City crisis, we have the ECIL now coming up and all these um, you know, new level of anxieties as to you know the, the you know returns the real returns to our economy with this increasing cost of all these projects and uh, the, of course part of the BRI projects as well so these are the things that uh, we need careful calculations and uh, the ECR project for example what would be the best return to the country and whether it will benefit China more or will benefit our country more in terms of you know this greater geopolitical impact so people don't really see that yet and uh, we have been you know being fed by all this of course narrative that um, is of great importance to our you know, national economic development, but then you know, the, the other effects of you know, long-term future uh, trapping that will implicate us in the future in terms of you know, whether geographically, whether it will really benefit us or really benefit other players uh, moving forward. So these are the things that I think we need really greater public uh, resonance as well as public affiliation. But uh, as to as to your question, I think it's, it's you know, a lot of no-go areas but uh, we need to have this greater understanding by the public as a whole. Right. I, I get a sense that you're, uh, you're not bullish on this particular relationship, at least an uncritical view of this relationship. I want to ask you this, though. You know, Japan announced a, um, that they would be providing equipment for warning and surveillance activity in the millions. And Anwar, the prime minister, came out to say that this is for our own security and not for offensive or aggressive means. I'm just quoting him there. How do you think Beijing will read this move? Yeah, uh, of course, we have seen that um, Beijing has always tried to maintain uh, our stance of, you know, um, neutrality, not taking sides. And you know, by having this uh, foreign policy stance of neutrality, eventually, of course, the, the biggest winner will be, of course, China. Because knowing that we won't tilt towards the U.S. or any other Western powers, including, you know, Australia or, you know, the, the growing presence of European players, including, uh, uh, you know, Britain and, and France in this region, uh, we have been, you know, quick to dismiss the, uh, the the efforts or support level being shown by the U.S. For example, in the West Capitalians, you know, where they have, you know, proposed, they have tried to help us with these more, you know, deterrent efforts, but we just basically told them to to to, to stand away, to back away, to back off because we don't want them to, you know, trigger greater, you know, dilemma. But then, uh, this is the area where we need to really think because we we, as of now. U.S. is our main and most critical defense partner. Uh, we are basically sitting ducks if we don't have this affiliation of security partnership with uh, the West, of course, the U.S. And, and now that we have also this new issue of uh, you know, the, the AUKUS arrangement, we have been quick also to denounce the uh, submarines and, and this mis whole notion of misperception that this AUKUS submarines provided by the U.S. to Australia, uh, you know, nuclear uh, you know, arm in nature, but in effect, they are all nuclear powered. And we have also already existing or past incidents of, you know, even nuclear powered or nuclear armed submarines in the region operated by different players, including China, but that has not been really well, uh, you know, debated or, you know, being put into the real perspective. So these are the things that I think uh, we really need greater deliberations. 
and that uh, as as you have mentioned, uh, as per your question, for you know what Japan has done in terms of OSC, it's, it's natural for them to do that now that it has faced the biggest threat since World War II, a three-pronged threat from Pyongyang, from Beijing, and from Moscow to a certain extent. And of course, you need this regional uh, support uh, acting as this, you know, you know, of course, the second front of woodwork, second woodwork option for them for, for Tokyo to ensure that it can defend its first uh, island chain as well as deterring any potential moves by Beijing. Of course, yes, yes, got existing uh, great security uh, alliance with the US and with the recent Camp David pact with Seoul as well. And the foregoing past historical animosity because of you know the need to face common threat by Beijing and Pyongyang. So we can see now that uh, although as much as we want Japan and to you know to deepen our defense ties with Japan, I think Beijing is well aware of the fact that we won't uh, you know do you know dwell that much or that deep into uh, this whole notion of security partnership with, with Japan because Tokyo also has its own limitation in terms of the types of weapons or assets that they can provide to us because under OS. As you can see, it's mainly being confined to a non-lethal, uh, you know, in terms of non-lethal assets being being provided, including other countries like Fiji or Bangladesh uh, or potentially Vietnam. So, in terms of the whole notion of strategic calculations, it is still within our best interest to ensure that uh, we keep, you know, all hands, um, you know, on the, you know, we, we have our options, all options on the table, and that we can also leverage on, you know, we have now moved into new phase of. Um, you know, defense diplomacy, and we have diversified our defense, you know, partnership with our Middle Eastern partners, including Ankara, including Riyadh. Of course, now we are courting Tokyo, and it's, it's long overdue, as I've always argued, it's long overdue to deepen our defense partnership with Tokyo and Seoul. We've got this new procurement of jets from, from South Korea now, and uh, but we must be, you know, vigilant as not to really, you know, forego or jeopardize our ingrained defense partnership with the West, especially the U.S., because that will be the easiest but the most important uh, deterrent level or deterrent support that we will have in facing these threats in South China Sea and beyond. Okay, can I just jump in there and ask you, I mean, you seem to be saying that Malaysia benefits from the continuation of the U.S. providing a security architecture for the region. But when you look at what's happening with the Biden administration and just the reality on the ground in the South China Sea, how much will that um, context hold? How, how much will it remain the same in terms of how Malaysia starts to map its own um, sort of trajectory through it? Right. Uh, we have seen the, uh, you know, under the Biden administration, we've seen how he has tried to, he has, he has tried to court, uh, you know, Xi Jinping as well as trying to have a lot of these overtures to Beijing. As you can see, within the past few months, uh, a lot of this, you know, you know, chateau diplomacy being done by you know, Blinken, by Raimondo, by uh, Janet Yellen, and high-ranking high individuals, including Bill Gates, uh, trying to send a message that, uh, of course, they are trying to balance, you know, and, and the, the this most important uh, bilateral, you know, relationship throughout the world. And we have seen how also now that facing this increasingly um, detrimental and volatile risk by you know, Beijing in terms of this uh, economic crisis, demographic crisis, and aging population, youth unemployment, the debt crisis, property sector crisis and all. So Xi Jinping has realized the need to also maintain the level of investment and trade by US firms. And we can see that being, you know, we can see that unfolding during the recent uh, APEC summit in San Francisco, where uh, Xi Jinping attended himself and has tried to, you know, to lure this 
business communities in the US and that. But of course, it has not been translated into the other domain of this military and security uh, sphere. And we have seen also now a recent report just today that, uh, you know, where Xi Jinping has told Biden that uh, Taiwan would be uh, reunified with China eventually. And, and it's only a matter of time. And we don't, with recent calculations that it will be done by 2027, with the recent call by by Xi that uh, you know this the, the readiness of Chinese troops and the whole military capacity to ensure that happens. And uh, so all this will need to be taken into account and that the ripple effects on the country and region we have seen all the uh, different trade platforms being being uh, you know being provided with China leading RCEP and with IPEF now in the frame and of course the US leading that we have uh, CPTPP I have to ask you to hold your thought. We're going to come back to you after the news break. Uh, can you continue sure. this fascinating discussion on uh, Malaysia's foreign policy? Uh, remember, uh, can you can join us by calling us or tweeting us or WhatsApping us on 018-789-8899, BFM 89.9. Burning for more. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It's 5.38. You're listening to the Evening Edition with me, Sharad. We're talking about the country's uh, foreign policy orientation. Uh, is it changing? Is it staying the course? Uh, and what you want from it. So tell us, uh, should our foreign policy be based on ethics? And if you want that, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? For it, uh, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. You can WhatsApp us or send us a voice note at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now with us on the line is Collins Chong. He's a foreign affairs and security analyst with the Center for Civilizational Dialogue at University of Malaya. Collins, thanks for staying on the line with us. We actually Thank have... You. I have um, a listener has written in uh, to say this, and I'm going to ask you for your comments on it. She says, um, so Jessica says, uh, U.S. neocons are the ones creating all the tensions and hostilities in the South China Sea and in Indochina. Their military warships and bases should not be here as they are 10,000 miles away. What's your response to um, a position like that? Yeah, I think that's, that's the, uh, the common narrative that's now being shaped, you know, and we have seen now this greater influence-seeking activities, you know, countermeasures being done in different areas. And uh, we can see that, you know, trying to project that the West or the U.S. are the ones that have been trying to destabilize the region with their own you know, naval capacities and all. And uh, but, but the truth has to be told, but because the reality uh, on, on the ground now is such that uh, the rules-based order and the regional peace and stability have been affected by this rising powers that have, you know, disregarded the uh, court or the international law that have, you know, been the main formation and backbone of international peace and stability. And this is, you know, it is of critical importance. I know, as we can see what has happened in Ukraine and what has happened in South China Sea. And of course, we have not felt the, uh, the, the urgency of the matter that we have faced now in South China Sea because, and, and we, have, you know, we have talked to so many different people, and they, they were quite, uh, you know, perplexed as to how you know, most Malaysians are not really aware of the risks involved uh, to our oil and gas deposit in South China Sea, and uh, that will be the main, you know, factor in, you know, you know, in navigating our economic resilience in the future because we have been depending so heavily on our national oil and gas capacity in powering our economy. But uh, you know, the risks involved in South China Sea is real, and that uh, you now the U.S. has provided this bulwark of uh, deterrence. 
as well as in maintaining the uh, stability of regional order, rules-based order, uh, and they have been upholding the moral high ground of, you know, in terms of trade, in terms of foreign policy, and... Well, Collins, let me just jump in there. Since you very much underappreciated by regional Right. I just want to ask you that about that, because uh, so much of this has come under scrutiny with uh, you, the U.S., with the European Union, with Canada, many of the so-called countries of the West over their response to the attacks on Gaza, on what some people will call the genocidal attacks on Gaza, that in some ways have undermined the moral high ground that you spoke about. I mean, what do you say to people who say that the rules-based order only benefits uh, those who are aligned with superpowers like the U.S.? Right, we've seen, of course, mistakes have been made uh, as well as to what happened in the Middle East in the early 2000s, in you know, the Iraq war, Afghanistan war, and of course, also mistakes have been made elsewhere. But uh, we are, you know, I'm, I'm of the argument that we need to emphasize on the greater the good and greater need of this, you know, the, the, the criticality of enforcing and ensuring uh, you know, normative values. Uh, you know, values of, you know, of course, freedom, democracy, social justice, peace and stability. And these have been largely, uh, you know, very much overlooked, very much bypassed, because we have been enjoying the fruits of more than seven or eight decades of relatively peaceful international order since the end of the Second World War. And of course, we have got the Cold War. And, uh, you know, for the West has, you know, maintained these, you know, decades of peace and stability. And this has been enjoyed, and this has been, of course, the benefits, you know, we have reaped, we have reaped the benefits, not only Malaysia, but of course, other, you know, greater regional powers, including China, including Japan, because the U.S. is enforcing maritime law, uh, which is of critical importance to ensure that there's this free flow of trade, supply chain, and, you know, and we have been complacent, we have been, you know, taking all this for granted. And now that we have seen, you know, the what has happened in Ukraine, that is the first step of, you know, greater things to come. You know, risk involved, and uh, you know, and for for the U.S. to ensure that we need to maintain this stability and what has you know proven to work for the past seven eight decades must be preserved. But you know, we are so overwhelmed, we are so you know bought over by all this new narrative building, you know, by certain players that you know, it's time to offer greater alternative to this so-called Western debt order. You know, we have seen how these different calculations that China is going to overtake the U.S. You know, we have seen different projections by 2015. So it didn't happen, they move it you know, forward to 2018, it didn't happen again, they move it forward to 2022, it didn't happen again. And some analysts have even you know, uh, argued and calculated it might not happen at all, so keep looking at this current trend of you know, future economic uh, calculations. So we need to be realistic that the US will still maintain its economic primacy, supremacy, for the next five to 10 years at least. In the monetary domain, of course, you will maintain that military supremacy for the next two or three decades uh, ahead um, by far. So this is the reality that we need to really take into account and not to be, you know, emotionally being uh, attached to this one-sided narrative that uh, we need to now to start pivot to, you know, this new order that is led by this global south, by, you know, Moscow or Beijing or the rise of these global south players in the Middle East. But of course, we cannot ignore the fact that U.S. or the West will still maintain its primacy in all these critical spheres, including critical technologies in, in of course, in semiconductor and AI, or 
Yeah, I get your point. So you're, you're always, right. So you're not a big fan of multipolarity. Okay, uh, at least maybe not as the uh, as right. a reality on the ground. If we have this message right. from Saul, he says, as for trade. We have yet to see anything concrete since the announcement of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for for Prosperity. Right. I mean, what's, I your, what's your take on that? I mean, has anything come up beyond these buzzwords? I, I would argue that the, the West, including the US, are the victims of their own moral high ground, uh, values-based approach, because they have maintained such a high framework of ensuring this you know, mutual returns of trade policies, economic policies and investment policies, taking into account environmental standards, taking into account labor standards and all these new uh, you know, moral-based values that we need to be you know, looked at. Instead of, you know, we have been driven, I think we have been uh, you know, enticed and we have been, you know, this, we have been moving deeper into this whole dogma and trap of these you know, free returns from investments, this cheap capital that we have from certain players, including China, and that uh, is to be of great importance for us to look at the longer, you know, the, the, the long-term prospects and returns to our economic, you know, structure. Because we need to move away from this um, capital-based investments or trade, and we need to really align with this, you know, values-based approach where we need to ensure labor standard, environmental standard, and this the transfer of critical technologies and expertise, and uh, you know, and, and this talent cultivation that will be of great returns to the country in the future in all these critical industries including, of course, AI and uh, not this EV uh, you know, standard models and different industries, green energy, digital economy and all that, which are still being you know, led by the West to a, to a larger extent. So this is where we need to be critical, we need to be uh, wise, we need to be strategic and not to be you know, quick to jump to the bandwagon of you know, you know, having these greater overtures in, in all domains now. You can see almost all domains uh, to these anti-Western uh, forces or this multipolarity kind of you know initiatives that are taking shape now, okay. this new movement of the global south that we, might be a great uh, you know. Oh, well, uh, let me ask you uh, one last question uh, for you, Collins, before we let you go. But it, yeah. it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, the, the recent announcement yeah. that Israeli ships or vessels flying the Israeli flag will no longer be allowed to dock at Malaysian ports. Now, Anwar has said that he believes that this decision will not have an impact on trade activities. But critics are saying that this policy uh, is is essentially sacrificing our economic interests for purely polit sorry, domestic political mileage. Where do you stand on this particular move by the administration yeah we, are, we have we have been having this consistent stance for the past uh, many decades regardless of political you know political affiliations or you know uh, and we have seen that uh, this issue has been uh, of great importance uh, on on all grounds of course on humanitarian grounds on the basis of the need to ensure that uh, you know players you know countries will you know take into account the need of you know civilian protection and, uh, you know, regardless of whatever justifications that they might have in terms of pursuing the, uh, you know, the acts of terror you know, by, by Hamas, but of course, the, the, the important tenet will be to ensure that uh, civilian lives, humanitarian grounds are, you know, the, the main priorities for all players. And this has been the stand of Malaysia. And, uh, of course, also we have seen being projected through a, a myriad or a different uh, in a comprehensive spectrum of platforms, including at the highest level, we have you know projected this uh, the, one of the strongest voices uh, you know throughout the world in terms of you know projecting this need for you know for 
for a complete stop, a complete cessation of you know conflicts and all the you know, these you know measures been taken by the Netanyahu regime, and that uh, this is the latest move because there is this growing uh, international pressure now on the uh, Netanyahu regime to 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 have this ceasefire and to to stop these atrocities in in Gaza in the whole Gaza Strip. Now we have seen uh, how the, uh, the the aftermath, the the the, the horror being being uh, you know uh, being unfolding now in that region. So. Um, is for for this issue, of course, it's of great importance for us to galvanize the whole of this Muslim world uh, consolidation of support, as well as you know we have seen how initially there were cracks in terms of this uh, condemnation or in terms of this concerted effort being put forth by the Muslim world as well as the global south. But this is where Malaysia will leverage, capitalize on this uh, influence in in the Middle East, of course, courting our players uh, in in. Tang- Ankara and Riyadh, and also, of course, in, in Egypt. And these are the main uh, players that will determine the next course of action. Of course, now Qatar is playing the mediating role uh, in terms of new talks of ceasefire. So, um, of course, uh, if you if, if see at the regional level, we have seen how uh, we have also you know, partnered closely with Jakarta, with Brunei, of course, to ensure that. Uh, and now there have been a growing chorus of calls by even by players that have posed this move in the past. We have Germany now and Britain. Now also supporting calls for you know this uh, you know to put a, re- a stop to all these uh, atrocities being done. So in terms of the economic impact, um, I won't foresee to be such a, a, a you know a, a very fast or you know in terms of these uh, economic implications or, or direct economic impact from this move. And uh, it really it, it further strengthens our already established green voice in this issue. And I think it's of great importance that we continue that. Uh, of course, at the a higher level, international level, and to build on from the momentum of this growing global call for the you know for Israel and for Netanyahu regime to 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 put a stop to this. And even Biden has has weighed in because of as you know the uh, because as 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 time drags along, um, you know Israel might win the battle with Hamas, but of course it is losing the bigger war in terms of you know gaining you know the, the awareness of support from regional and global players because we have, as we have seen now. The, uh, the the whole you know kind of concerted consolidated comprehensive responses by a lot of different global players uh, to to ensure that Israel will need to adhere to international law and we need to put a stop immediately to these uh, you know uh, horrors and atrocities that have been done to the people in Gaza. Yeah, thank you so much. Because just a quick note, uh, Biden did bypass Congress to fund Israel and its continuing atrocities in Gaza. But that's a subject for another day. Thank you very much, Collins, right. for speaking to us. Thank that you. Co- thank Collins. you very much. That was thank Collins you. Chong, a foreign affairs and security analyst with the Center for Civilizational Dialogue at the University of Malaya. Tell us what you think. Should our foreign policy be based on ethics? And if so, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? You can call 7773 You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Bring forth Moolah, BFM 89.9. It's 5.53, and this is the evening edition with me, Sharad. Just talking about foreign policy and where uh, Malaysia should go and what is 
happening in the larger global landscape and how this government, or any government, uh, after it will have to negotiate Malaysia's national interests versus that of its you know, larger, I think, commitments to ethics and justice in, on a global level, right? So tell us what you think. Should our foreign policy be based on ethics and how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. You can WhatsApp us or send us a voice note on 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We do, in fact, have uh, one more message, and this is from Air Fun. Your guest seems to be singing too high a praise for the West that it uh, that it undermines his credibility, saying moral high ground and the US and EU in the same sentence is a joke and despicable at the same time when the US is the lone party halting a ceasefire through veto. Uh, Irfan, I understand your concerns. Um, and I th- I th- to be fair to our guest, uh, Colin Strong, he, he did in fact note that um, in many ways the US is also damaging its reputation with the its current position, though he does see a change um, happening uh, there as well, just because of the global pressure, uh, not just for a ceasefire, but in fact, in some ways, I think deep scrutiny as to the kind apartheid-like state and society that Israel has become and whether we can even go back to the past. I think it's a big question for all of us concerned about justice for Palestinians and also just justice uh, globally. Um, Malaysia, of course, has been very interested in what's happened in Myanmar now under military rule uh, and there are conflicts all over the world. How do governments, especially small to medium-sized governments like Malaysia, navigate those difficult waters. Tell us what you think. Should our foreign policy be based on ethics? And if so, how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.